Well, happy Thanksgiving. Yeah, that was all right. Uh, but you didn't have a warning, so now you do. Happy Thanksgiving. Thank you so much for thinking to tell me that. Uh, what a great week for us to embark on and with this particular teaching and message regarding uh, this whole notion of how does Thanksgiving impact our lives. We'll be talking more about that, obviously, next weekend. But if you're just joining us, and I met some folks in the foyer after the first service who are so excited to be here their very first time, we're, we've embarked on a new chapter, building on 40 years of rich ministry history and legacy. And that chapter now is under the umbrella of a vision of engaging people to be fully alive in Jesus. And engaging people to be, to be fully alive in Jesus is something that has a multifaceted meaning to it. In 2019, we're going to be delving even more deeply into that. But one thing we know, for an individual and for a, a community of God's people, a church like this, for us to be fully alive will involve what you just saw in that graphic. Let's bring that graphic up again. Life-giving generosity. We are in the presence of a God who's given us more than we will ever need, lavishly, abundantly, extravagantly. He's blessed us. He's been life, uh, he's exercised life-giving generosity towards us, and he calls us to do the same with one another. And that's an adventure of grace, an adventure of unpacking grace together. We've been in a four-week series. This is the culmination of that. And you guys have rocked my world in a, in a very positive way. You've been, you've been so encouraging because you're open to talking about this. And uh, you've, 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 tr you've trusted me, you've trusted John last week to talk about some very difficult subjects in terms terms of, okay, our time and our abilities and our finances are not our own, they're, they're God's. And so thanks for coming to this, this, this final weekend. And to, to top it off, I thought, all right, no better way to do it than a pretty heavy theological reading. You guys ready for that? Adam Raccoon in Lost Woods by Glenn King. Um, this, I just ran into this book, came across it recently on our shelves, I got it for Andrew. So this would have been over a quarter of a century ago. And in fact, we, we were going to supply the bookstore with some copies and it's out of print. So Andrew, watching online from Afghanistan, he called me, FaceTime, boy, how cool is that? You're walking along and all of a sudden your son's photo comes up, a FaceTime call. I was in the car driving here. So any law enforcement officers here, I did not look at him much, but I did listen to him a lot. And he said to tell you guys, hello, thank you for praying for him. But uh, Andrew, the book you, I read to you when you were a kid is out of print. So you're old. That's what that means. But there are other Adam Raccoon books that we have available in the bookstore and also plenty of other things for your Christmas shopping as well. Uh, and, and even resources for what we're talking about in this series. But I saw this book, I thought this, this would be great. So we're going to read, and I'm going to need your help. Uh, there's some, when I would read it to uh, Andrew and then his younger brothers, uh, pass it on to Joel and Stephen, I'd need their help with sound effects. So there'll be a few times, it's going to be obvious. I'm going to need your, your help with some sound effects in reading this. Deal? <laughs> you guys, what are you hesitant for? You got nothing to lose. You're, uh, okay. Uh, 
The sun had not yet risen in Master's Wood. Nearly everyone was sleeping. A single light shone from Adam Raccoon's window. He had been up for hours getting ready for the big day. Knock, knock. Well, that must be him, Adam said, running to open the door. There stood the mighty lion, King Aaron. Are you ready to go on the hike, Adam? The sun's almost up, he said. In a way, he could be saying, you ready to go on your adventure, Northland? The sun's almost up. Yes, wait one second. I'll be right back, Adam replied. And he comes out with a mountain of stuff. And it was interesting. I saw it came across this book about the same time it came across an article from The Atlantic Monthly. It was an article from August. And the title of the article is, We Are All Accumulating Mountains of Things. And that's what Adam Raccoon's looking like right there as well. Mountains of things. The, the, in 2017, this article says Americans spent $240 billion. So last year, we spent $240 billion, twice as much as we spent in 2002 on goods like jewelry, watches, books, luggage, telephones, related communication equipment, personal care products, same thing, doubled. Uh, Mark Cohen, the director of retail studies at Columbia University's Graduate School of Business, said this, and this is where they got the title of the article, said, all told, we are all accumulating mountains of things. He sometimes asks his students to count the number of things they have on them in class. And once they start counting up gadgets and cords and accessories, they end up near 50. And then Cohen said this, Americans have become a society of hoarders, which is why the number of self-storage units is rapidly increasing too. We now have about 52,000 such facilities nationally. That's double what we had two decades ago. So this whole notion of trying to do a journey with mountains of things is very relevant to where we are in our culture. Okay, I'm ready, Adam said. Huh? Adam, why are you bringing all of that? I've, I've already planned for everything. Oh, but I need all this stuff. It won't be any trouble, honest. I, I know what I'm doing. Come on, let's go. Um, Adam, you're heading the wrong way. Follow me. And so they started on their journey. Adam quickly realized this was not going to be as easy as he thought. Stopping at a stream, King Aaron said, crossing this stream is going to be tricky. Watch how I do it, Adam. Grabbing a hanging vine, King Aaron swung easily across the stream. <laughs> but all Adam could see was the stuff he was carrying. Now it was Adam's turn, and carefully he stretched his foot to the first rock. Okay, it's all right, we were, you, you didn't know it was coming. It, it was a fast page turn, so, and I realized, caught you off guard. So, he carefully he stretched his foot to the first rock. Zip! All right, that's good. The rocks are very slippery. Zip, splash. Adam frantically grabbed for his things as they floated down the stream. But it was too late. He was only able to save his little red ball. Adam, try not to worry about losing your things. You really don't need them when you're with me, King Aaron said. What about my ball? 
can I bring it? It's so small. And besides, it's the only thing I have left. It'll only cause you more trouble, Adam. Now, come on now, stay close by my side, King Aaron said. Adam followed him, clutching his little red ball, and ahead of them lay the dangerous lost woods. Okay, Uh, that was pretty good. You guys get an award right there. Uh, Let's try it again. Ahead of them lay the dangerous lost woods. Guys are awesome. King Aaron had traveled this way many times before, and holding tight to the king's hand, Adam knew he would be safe. A howling sound swirled around them. (laughs) It was the cold wind whistling through the twisted trees. The lost woods had many twisted paths that crisscrossed here and there, but King Aaron always knew which way to turn. Soon the woods began to brighten, flowers bloomed everywhere. Adam was feeling safer. He let go of the king's hand and started to play with his little red ball. Whoops, the ball rolled off the path and into the woods, down the hill and through a log. It rolled to a stop in a little clearing. Adam picked it up and turned to go back. But which way was back? Nothing looked familiar as he headed in what he thought was the right direction. This is the scariest page to me, that spider. Freaked me out every time, the size of it. The woods seemed darker and colder now. Frantically, Adam tried to find a way back. King Aaron, help, I'm lost. Exhausted, Adam fell to the ground. It's hopeless, I'll never find my way back, he said. And then Adam realized he wasn't alone. A low growling surrounded him. Wolves! From behind every tree and rock crept a hungry wolf. Adam tried to scream for help. With one mighty roar, the wolves leaped at Adam. Adam waited, but nothing happened. He took a peek and could hardly believe what he saw. All around him, the wolves were cowering as though they were afraid. Adam didn't understand. Then he felt the big strong paw resting on his shoulder. King Aaron, Adam cried. It was you who scared them away. Adam, the king said, aren't you leaving something behind, as in a little red ball? Nothing that I need as long as I'm with you, Adam replied, and they continued on their way. We all, at all times, have a little red ball that's got our attention. Might be quite a few of them. And often we rely on a little red ball instead of on Jesus. We think this will give us the security, the fulfillment, the satisfaction, the sense of significance. And we chase after it. Alexander Solzhenitsyn was a Russian statesman philosopher, brilliant man. He was in prison during the Soviet communist oppression. He was in prison in the Gulag, and he came to Christ there. And years later, he did some phenomenal writing. And one of the things that he said is, we always pay dearly for chasing after what is cheap. 
We always pay dearly for chasing after what is cheap. Why? Because when we chase after what is cheap, that means we're no longer chasing after something that's valuable. When we're clutching onto something that's cheap, we're not able to clutch onto something that's far more significant. And our things, and we've been talking about our time and our abilities and our, our finances. In all three of those areas, we can clutch on to, to things that are not nearly significant enough and they can distract us. But especially in the area of our money and our possessions, that little red ball can just draw us in and captivate us and clutch on to our hearts. And it's why Jesus spent so much time talking about money and possessions. Why? Because we always pay dearly for chasing after what is cheap. One in every six verses in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, if you haven't been with us, if you have, you've heard this before, but if you haven't, one in every six verses in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus are dealing with money and possessions. 16 out of his 29 parables dealing with money and possessions. He talked more about money and possessions than heaven and hell combined. And there's a stereotype in churches that, uh, man, those, those, if this is your first weekend, you're thinking, yep. So a stereotype, you go to church, they talk about money. We, we don't do that a whole lot here. We need to actually do it more. But the reason that we cower in, back in a lot of churches because of the abuse that goes on in some circles, some televangelists, not all televangelists, but some that manipulate Scripture and, and do weird things, putting the guilt on people regarding giving so they can fund their own coffers in, in inappropriate ways. Just because of the abuse, though, does not mean we shouldn't talk about it because Jesus spent so much time talking about it, and it's because of the liberation of it. If we can grasp the power of this little red ball and how it can do damage if we don't let it go and trust Him. If we can realize that, Jesus says, you can't serve both God and money. You, 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 you're going to have to clutch on to one or the other. You, you can't serve two masters. So how do I keep this little red ball from gripping my life? How can I actually release my grip on it in a, in a way that's freeing? There's one word. It's a great word for this week. Gratitude. When I begin to live with a posture of gratitude, I start realizing this comes from God and He's not stingy. And therefore, if I give this little red ball away, He'll provide another one. I don't have to worry. And it's this whole notion of seeing God's extravagant generosity towards us. That's what's behind Psalm 103, verse 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. Let all that I am praise the Lord. This is some of what we were doing during the doxology a minute ago. With my whole heart, I will praise His holy name. Let all that I am praise the Lord. May I never forget the good things He does for me. He forgives all my sins. He heals all my diseases. He redeems me from death. He crowns me with love and tender mercies. He fills my life with good things. My youth is renewed like the eagles. Now notice that. Those good things, this isn't necessarily bad until I start paying more attention to it than I should. How can the good things renew us instead of hold us back? How can these good things in our lives become tools that liberate us instead of prisons that enslave us? 
has a lot to do with gratitude, which is why I've called this, this message galvanized by gratitude. Now, that word galvanize, if you're a steel person, you know there's various meanings. It's an offensive word and a defensive word. It's defensive in this sense. When steel is galvanized, it's protected. It's dipped in various things. Zinc is, I think, a a primary coating. And it, it protects it from erosion. Galvanized also is offensive. When I'm galvanized by something, I'm propelled by it. So to be galvanized by gratitude is to be both protected and propelled. And for us embarking on this adventure called Northland's new chapter, we need to be protected and propelled, and gratitude will do it for us. Gratitude that's authentic, that's engaging with the majesty of who God is and what He's done for us through Christ. And it, it produces that posture that enables us to be his tools because all of a sudden, instead of being fixated on the little red ball in each of our lives, we're fixated on some greater things. Now, in this series, we've looked at 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 9. I'm going to go back to it one more time. Paul is writing to the church, the Corinthians, the church in Corinth, and he's writing to them about an offering he's taking for the church in Jerusalem. For the people of Jerusalem, they've had a a, a crisis. It wasn't an earthquake uh, or fires, but it it produced the same kind of famine, same kind of difficulty, and they needed assistance. And so he's taking this offering, he's writing to the Corinthian church, using the Macedonian church as, as an example. And this is a passage we looked at two weeks ago, and I want you to look at it again, but I want you to pay attention, and I've given, I've underlined some stuff. It has a lot to do with gratitude. Gratitude and our generosity is some things that they go hand in hand. Here we go, verse 11, you will be enriched in every way so that, so that, so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. There we go again. And verse 13, because of the service by which you prove yourselves, others will praise God. There we go. The, the gratitude starts getting contagious for the obedience that accompanies your confession to the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of it's the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks, here we go again, thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. So the notion of gratitude that comes up over and over in this text combines with two other things that we've been looking at. One is grace and the other is generosity. And we've, we've talked about how grace and generosity interplay. Now I'm going to put a label over what we've been looking at and call it the cycle of gratitude. And so here we go, take a look at it. And it's what you've seen before without that heading, the cycle of gratitude. But gratitude is really the glue that holds us together. Bottom line, God's taking the initiative in this dance of redemption, of restoration, of bringing you and me back to life, restoring us to the original purpose we're made for. And that comes with so many blessings. And actually, even if you're not a follower of Christ, there's tons of blessings from what theologians refer to as common grace, God being gracious to all living things in this lifetime. But in that grace, I need to start embracing and experiencing it through Christ. And as I experience extravagant grace, and the word extravagant 
I'm not trying to be flowery there. That's the word that's used. You see, it's a, the Greek word is perisua. We've looked at it a couple of times in this series. It's a word that Jesus uses in John 10, 10. I've come that you might have life and have it perisuo abundantly. In Ephesians 1, we've got his lavished us with his grace. Perisuo with his grace is the root word for that. It means overflowing, abundant, lavish, extravagant. So he has blessed us with extravagant grace. And when I start to experience that, that will lead me to practicing extravagant generosity. And actually, you can find out a lot. I can find out a lot about how deeply I'm experiencing God's extravagant grace by looking at my generosity. And that week, which was the first week of the series, we talked about how our generosity is like a thermometer, gives us a reading of how we're doing. In terms of our submission to Him, our maturity, our, our, how loving we are, how grateful we are, etc. My generosity reveals so much about that. But there's a cycle here. Practicing that extravagant generosity leads to more deeply experiencing extravagant grace. So that's kind of the thermostat that we looked at in week number two. A thermostat determines the temperature. So the more generous I am, the more that positively impacts my walk with God and my experience of this this full life, this life with a capital L that Jesus tells us about. And here's what enables that dance to happen. It's gratitude. That's that is me having a grateful. And so us singing the doxology was very intentional to say, that's something we should do every day. Now, what's it look like? In a practical way, I've had some great conversations with you guys during the week, stopping me at stores, uh, restaurants, and also in the foyer. And uh, One thing that's been so encouraging is how you guys have said, let's roll up our sleeves. We realize, yeah, a lot lot of the teaching about stewardship has been abused by the church. That's no reason for us to be quiet. It's all the more reason for us to do it in a solid, biblical, grace-oriented way. So I'm I'm grateful for your engagement with that. And as a result, we've extended this series for another 40 weeks. And so we're going to keep going. Just kidding. But I'm hoping over the next 40 weeks we'll be unpacking this. But some of you have said, hey, let's get real practical. What, how do I start practicing that generosity with my time, my abilities, my finances? Let's go back through these two texts, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, and look at four characteristics. And bottom line, you know how dropping the ball is a bad thing? Don't drop the ball. Here's one time I want to say it's a good thing. Drop the ball. Drop that little, how do I do that? Gratitude that fuels a generosity that's anchored around the grace of God. But what will it look like? Let me give you four characteristics. First, that generosity will be intentional. Intentional. I have to make a very specific, deliberate decision to let go, to be generous, to give it away. Go back to the text. You can see. Go ahead and bring it up because I, I, I've got my Bible and I'll turn to it, but good, good old technology is delayed. There we go. Each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. So there's a notion of making a decision ahead of time. What a lot of us do, and when I was a, a young believer, I didn't think about generosity. I didn't think about it ahead of time. It was an afterthought. Somebody would come along and maybe they'd take an offering for something. i say, oh, 
okay, well, and just check and see if I had any, any change or uh, some bills and, and, and put it in. Uh, you don't, I didn't start a day thinking, okay, today I want to give some of my time away for the benefit of somebody else. Every now and then I just do it. And that's, it's great to be responsive in those spur of the moments. And there's something really fun about that spur of the moment generosity with my time or maybe a, an expertise that I've got or my finances. But that should be the cherry on top. Usually those things are a little bit farther, farther between if we're not being intentional from the get-go and beginning each day saying, how am I going to be generous today with my time, with my abilities, with my finances? 1 Corinthians 16, 2, on the first day of the week, each of you should set aside a sum of money. And I tell you, our finances can be a great way to learn this, and that's a, it's a lesson that then spills over into our time and our abilities, but to do it ahead of time. Anybody here write out your to-do list at the end of the day, and each time you write it, you check them off? Yeah, you, you, anybody here have friends who at the end of a day write their to-do list from that day and check it off? Where I've done that before. I didn't write the to-do list at the beginning of the day, but I just needed to write it at the end of the day, feel good about the day. And there's nothing deliberate about it. It was all reactive. Often that's how we approach our time and our abilities and our finances. Take our finances in particular. There are only a few options of where your finances are going to go. This is the priority order that most Americans uh, deal with their finances and spend their money. First, on basic expenses. Second, on, on taxes, because you go to jail otherwise. Third, is starts getting tricky. We make lifestyle decisions for any number of reasons. And then fourth follows number three, debt. Often debt comes because we want to adopt a lifestyle that's beyond our means. And so debt repayment becomes a part of that. Then if we've got anything left over, savings and investment. And the last thing is giving. Now what would happen, I was with some people on Thursday from our community that are involved in some amazing ministry and giving to some ministry stuff. One of them was saying, they, they don't go to Northland, but uh, heard about this, this series said, you know what, that whole generosity thing, when we finally got it, it was a couple talking, just in this, not into a whole room, just in a small conversation. When we finally got it, it, it revolutionized. Our, our marriage, our, our walk with Christ, and basically moving giving up in that list to number one, or number two, or number three, and saying, hey, that's what God created us to do, and it has to do with being intentional and deliberate. I'm not going to be locking the doors, taking an offering here. This is for you and God to deal with. If we can help you with resources, we will. But it's how we're wired. Here's the second characteristic of dropping that ball, of, of being generous. It doesn't involve just being intentional, but being proportional. This is really important. A lot of people think it, there's a set amount or something. This, it's between you and God according to what the scriptures say, but it's, it's a proportion. So there's a quality. Everybody does different things according to the amount of time, the amount of the, the, the abilities we have, the amount of finances. So verse, verse 10 and 11, 12, 13 of 2 Corinthians 8. Here we go. 
And here is my judgment about what is best for you in this matter. Last year, you were first, the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. I love that, by the way. It wasn't a, a compulsion thing. He said, now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your com- completion of it according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has. Here we go not according to what one does not have. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you're hard pressed, but that there might be equality. And that equality comes from, hey, everybody participating in a a manner that's proportional to their means. I didn't read the entire verse two from 1 Corinthians 16 a minute ago, so here we go. 1 Corinthians 16, two, on the first day of the week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money That's the intentionality part, setting it aside. Nobody drifts into generosity. We make decisions to be generous or not, but here we go. In keeping with your income, saving it up. What's the proportion? Some people say it's 10%, could be. New Testament talks about it basically, but assumes that. That's for your own scripture study. I'm not going to try to bind your conscience on that. It's just something, and it could be that it's incremental and moving in that direction. But bottom line, it's not just a set amount. It's looking at overall, how has God blessed me and understanding where that's coming from and realizing that it's all his to begin with. Uh, Chronicles, 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 11. A lot of people say, well, how much is God's? Is it 10%? Well, this answers it. Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and earth is yours. People say, how much of what I have is God's? The answer, all of it. But he's entrusting it to me as a steward. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You're exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You're the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. Now, our God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. So there is an aspect of of deep gratitude and understanding. Basically, it's all his. And so he, at various seasons, will lead me to various proportions. Uh, And for some people, they will say 10%. Arlene and I buy by that as a minimum. You might be led in another way. That's, that's between you and God. But a lot of times it's approaching it from that standpoint and understanding it's all his. Peter Marshall was the chaplain of the Senate, middle part of the last century. And a wealthy business guy came up to him, a pretty influential guy, and said, I got a problem. He was a follower of Christ. He said, well, tell me about your problem. He said, well, I, uh, it's about tithing. The whole 10% thing. When I was just starting my business, I was a young man who was making $20,000 a year. $2,000 a year was not, it wasn't a big issue. I was able to do that. But now I, my company has grown. I make about $500,000 a year. And I just can't, I cannot afford to give $50,000 of that away in, in, to, to various ministries and causes. And he was pretty stressed about it. And so he said, uh, do you have any advice? And Peter said, could I, I, could I pray for you? The guy said, sure. And so Peter Marshall prayed and said, God, thank you for the way that you have blessed my brother. And I realize he has a serious problem that he is now trying to deal with. And I pray that you would reduce his salary back to the point where he can afford to give 10% again. Amen. 
And, you know, I looked at him and point was made. How much of it is God? But, it's, it's, but that proportional is very difficult without it being intentional and thinking through it. But it's proportional. It takes pressure off. Mark chapter 12, verse 41, Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings are put, and I told you about this verse before, and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts. So Jesus is sitting next to the, the credit kiosks or the cash boxes, watching what people do. But a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. Why? Because generosity is proportional. It's not a particular amount. They all gave out of their wealth, but she out of her poverty. She put in everything, all she had to live on. How do I figure out that proportion? Well, it's between God and me, but there is another principle that informs that, and it's the third characteristic of letting go of the little red ball of, of this generosity that's grace-motivated and gratitude-fueled. My generosity is to not just be intentional and proportional, but sacrificial. Sacrificial in this sense. So often we think our generosity is surplus, that we give away the red ball that we no longer need. It's just there. What if I were to give a red ball away that I, was pretty significant and important to me? Go back to the text, verse, chapter 8, verse 1, 2 Corinthians. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches in the midst of a very severe trial. Notice that they were not in a good spot to be generous. Arlene and I one time were dealing with a really significant financial crisis. We had to make a decision. Do we continue to, to be generous or not? And we, we made the decision to do so. And, and I believe that that had a direct result in God rescuing us in a sense. Their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. So it was not surplus. It was something that was inconvenient. To what degree? That's between you and, and the Father to say, okay, how inconvenient. 2 Samuel 24, 24, David says, I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So in other words, it's not just surplus, it's me making a decision to say, I don't just get the red ball that's back in my closet that I no longer use. That's, that's, that's like a given. Those things, get rid of those. But it's maybe the red ball that I'm using on a daily basis that is important. Do I trust God enough? And do I understand that, as Jesus said, it really, it, 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 it really is better to give than receive. A couple of years ago, the boys club, boys and girls clubs in Atlanta did something with a number of their kids that come from less fortunate environments. They gave them, uh, found out about our, their shopping list, their Christmas list, what they wanted and what their parents wanted. They gave them both gifts and gave them a pretty difficult decision. Or was it difficult? Take a look.
this year for Christmas, what are you hoping to get? A computer. Big, giant, Barbie house. A trophy case. Xbox 360. Minecraft Legos. What do you think your mom or dad want for Christmas? My mom would probably want a ring. She's never really had a ring. Jewelry. She loves jewelry. A new TV. My watches. So, you actually did buy an Xbox 360. What in the world? I wanted this! Okay, you you really got this for me? A new laptop. Wow. It's a necklace. So we also bought a necklace because you said you also wanted to get a necklace for your mom or your auntie. The catch is that you can either get a gift for yourself huh? or you can pick a gift for your mom and dad. I need you to pick one. Now, now before you answer, oh, I bet that's hard. Is that a really hard question? Mm-hmm. What gift do you pick? I choose this. I gotta go with the ring. What gift do you pick? That one. That one. That dress. I'll choose this for my mom. I'll choose this one. It's a really tough question. I'll give him this. You already know? Tell me why. Because Legos don't matter. Lego, your family matters. Not Legos, not toys, your family. So it's either family or Legos, and I choose family. I get gifts every year from my family, and my mom don't get anything. If I get a laptop, my mom will get something. She helps me when I'm sick. She helps me with my homework. She gave me a house to live in. They look out for me and do stuff for me, so I need to give back to them. Now I, I have the opportunity to give them something. Because you actually picked the gift for your family, you're actually going to go home with both. Tell me how you're feeling. I'm feeling really happy and Why? thankful. Just happy. Thankful. For your family? For what? My family. Everything. He did make his decision, actually. And oh he goodness. picked the Pandora Charms. Hebrews 13, verse 15 and 16. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise. The fruit of lips, it confesses his name. And do not forget to do good and to share with others. For with such sacrifices, God is pleased. But he will be a debtor to no man or woman. Jesus said in Luke 6, 38, given it will be given to you. Trust Him in this. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So in God's economy, when we sacrifice, other people are served, God is glorified, but we're blessed, which leads to the fourth characteristic. Cheerful. 
What does my generosity look like with my time and my abilities and my finances? How do I drop the ball? By being intentional, by being proportional, by being sacrificial, but also cheerful. Is cheerful the chicken or the egg? Yes. And it's part of that cycle. I've, I've never met anybody, ever, who's generous, who regretted it. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 5, so I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to visit you in advance and finish the arrangements for the generous gift you had promised. Then it will be ready as a generous gift, not as one grudgingly given. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Because it's in that giving that we start experiencing this life. The, the, as Paul said, the life that's truly life. First Timothy chapter 6, verse 12, Paul's writing to his buddy Timothy, who's a pastor. He says, Tim, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life. Remember we talked about that's not just future tense, that's present as well, with the, to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Verse 17, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. So it's still for those red balls, it's still for my enjoyment, but it's for others' enjoyment as well. To be generous, willing to share. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. How do I take hold of that life? How do I become fully alive? It will involve me living generously. And how can we not, right at the beginning of a Christmas season, mention, in this topic, mention Eberdezer Scrooge, A Christmas Carol. I don't know if you know, but it was a book before it was a movie. And here's what Ebenezer, this miser who was transformed to be generous. This is how he was described afterwards. Randy Alcorn talks about this in one of his books. He said, he went to church. Here's the quote from Dickens himself. He went to church, walked about the streets, watched the people hurrying to and fro and and patted children on the head and questioned beggars and looked down into the kitchens of houses and up to the windows and found that everything could yield him pleasure. He had never dreamed that any walk, that anything could give him so much happiness. Why? Where's that coming from? Generosity. Later Dickens writes, some people laughed to see the alteration in Ebenezer Scrooge, but he let them laugh and little heeded them. His own heart laughed and that was quite enough for him. And it was always said of him that he knew how to keep Christmas well if any man alive possessed the knowledge. What I'd like to do is for you to take a look at that graphic that's either on your worship guide or we'll put it up on the screens. Here's the deal. As we're looking at this adventure of grace, there's the trail before us. Don't think you got to get in one day to the top of the mountain. How about just one dash ahead? Just one step of being generous from a time, from your abilities, from a financial standpoint. What's God saying to you? Respond to Him and let's see Him lavish life on us and in us and through us in this community and around the world. We're going to give you an opportunity to respond practically. And if you think that's an offering, it's not, all right? 
Just relax. Let me pray for you. And then we're going to truly worship before we leave here. Jesus.